Thank you all so much for singing out for us, Jason, Stephanie, Lindsay, and Ann. Thank you all for being here today um, and uh, worshiping with us. If you're wondering, I'm carrying on two iPads. I don't have two iPads. One belongs to the church, but uh, I figured an iPad, pages can't blow on an iPad. Um, so I figured out a way to beat the wind still yet. So uh, thank you all so much for being here today. Thanks so much for worshiping. Um, you know, this I've always dreamed of doing an amphitheater. Y'all have heard me talk about that enough before um, with all the land we've got and uh, this little dry run that we've had lately. Um, we might still yet get to do that um, uh, in the future. Hopefully sooner than uh, later we'll have a, a great amount of uh, things to enjoy here on the property. But I want to speak to regarding um, why we're out here and not inside um, just before we get started. Uh, I thank you so much for cooperating and uh, just being the best church that uh, anybody could ask for um, as a pastor. Um, I want to speak what uh, why we're out here, why we're not inside, uh, and what our plans are for the very near very near future. Um, not We're not talking long-term yet, but um, you know, I believe our area has been protected uh, because our prayers and our dependence on God, yes, but also I believe because we've cooperated with uh, with the, the, the uh, guidelines and suggestions that have been given to us. Uh, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 um, told a New Testament church under oppression from Rome um, that they were to cooperate, so I think the least we can do, and uh, you all, we all have done a good job, I think, at doing that. Uh, but beyond that, you know, this has never been about politics. Um, wins aren't measured in uh, bills or orders. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we have, from the very first week, put our health um, of you all, the health of one another, um, first, front and center. And uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says that uh, the, the church ought to give the most attention uh, to the weaker or the indispensable or the parts that need the most honor. Uh, that doesn't mean they're, that the parts that are least important, but rather the most important. Um, least when it comes to immunity and strength, but most important when it comes to the mission of the church. So we've chosen to put the least um, of us uh, first because uh, that's, that's our important, that's our God-given responsibility. I would rather be late um, to progress than early to regress. So we've taken the scripture's advice and been prudent and not foolish. Um, and, and I know we're all on both sides. Everybody has their different opinions, and I understand that, and I respect that. Um, if you think we're still being a little bit more precautious, I ask you to join me in loving those who may deem such things like this necessary. Um, you know, our goal was to follow 1 Corinthians 8, where it says that we should not use our freedom as a stumbling block, um, and uh, Colossians 4, 5, which says we should walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, so that's all I'll say for now. Um, I'll have some more information to give about the coming, uh, at least for the end of May, um, here in an email, probably coming up Tuesday. Uh, but thank you so much for understanding. Thank you for putting each other first. Um, Y'all know me. I, I love preaching in nice, cool environments um, with a screen, with all sorts of illustrations. Y'all know that. Um, this has really challenged me in the last couple of months. Um, but uh, I think what we're doing is the most Christian thing that we can do. Um, and unlike many in the world, we are blessed to not have missed a gathering since this all started back in March. Um, through online and now outdoors, I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot spiritually, and I hope and I trust that you all have too. Um, you know, we haven't wasted this season, and uh, God is using it to prepare us and bless us, I believe. And, and we will move with wisdom and with faith going forward. Uh, we're going to map out a plan to get back indoors and make sure we have a safe and clean environment. Until then... Um, we are going to keep, we're going to worship like this and keep loving and being a good witness. And uh, all those things are what the world needs to feel and hear and see in the church and from Christians and from us right now. So I want to pray for us. Then we're going to jump into God's word today. And I hope you're looking forward to it. Father, thank you for protection. Uh, thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for our leaders and thank you for our church. 
Thank you for Jesus who can redeem anyone and anything, even this sort of season that we've been in. Thank you for making your presence and your power known in this season. Thank you for the victories we've already seen and the victories we are still going to see. Guide us in this time, Father. Use your word today to empower us and equip us until the fullness of life in Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 4 today. We're going to be reading from Acts 4, verses 23 through 37 in just a few minutes. I want to just give you a warning. This text is very challenging. Um, it may feel more challenging because it's a little warm, but it's very challenging. Uh, we often talk about how the early church did things, and we talk about getting back to the early church. This passage shows the early church being the most early churchy they could be. Um, and this conversation that uh, we're going to have and that this text brings before us, it may be a little uncomfortable, but I think it's because of the comfort that God wants to give us in the end. And, and it may seem challenging to our way of life only because God wants to liberate us to a greater and better way of life. Um, it's the most countercultural, radical of all New Testament passages, and that's saying a lot. Um, and I think it's good that we're studying in this format today because this challenging text goes well with these challenging circumstances. And, and I'm very careful about reading my circumstances into the text, but I don't believe it's, uh, I don't believe what we're doing today is reading in. I believe that we see the parallels in our day and in that day. And I believe how we've had to manage and carry on in the last few months is similar. Um, the best, the most similar it'll ever be for us in our world, in our blessed country, as it was for the early church and their uh, difficult circumstances. So uh, what God is wanting to change about how we see the world, I believe, based on what we've went through, I believe we get a little bit of a picture of it in Acts 4. So Acts 4, verse 23, y'all have heard this text before, verse 23 through 37. Just listen to these words and underline, highlight what you might feel led to, but just, just there's so much in here that uh, that is just so overwhelming at times when I read it. And being let go, as that, that is from prison and from the courts, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that they had raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David said, why have the nations raged? Why did the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Gentiles and the people of Israel, gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined that, that, that withal, determined before to be done. Now, Lord, on their, look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness that we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name, uh, the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were with one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with the great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Jose, who was named Barnabas by the apostles, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In this passage, we find a church that had adopted a greater faith, been filled with heaven's fire, and had taken center stage in God's kingdom. 
In just a few short weeks, they had walked away from all their dreams, all their plans, all their desires they had ever had. And in this text, we find them seeking out and moving towards a radical new normal. Was there something wrong with their dreams, their plans, their wants? Not necessarily, but they had awakened to a new and better way of life. One that wasn't by sight, but by faith. They had surrendered their dreams and their plans and desires to God because they heard the call of a greater cause. Jesus had given his life for all and he had given his spirit to them and they felt the weight of the moment. They saw how the enemies of God were gathered and getting started in their oppression. They knew they would not back down and they couldn't either. They would have to rise up and take on a greater faith, be filled with more fire, knowing that every stage of life they step onto, even those that were dimly lit, were where God had placed them to work his power and make his name known. They couldn't be distracted by lesser things. The risk to follow Jesus was great, but to not follow him was an even greater risk. So that's why they chose to walk by faith and not by sight. They chose to look up to heaven and lean into the Great Commission to live as if all that God had promised was true, to live as if all their potential was real because the as if was worth the risk. Ignoring the as if would be the greater risk. So even after being beaten and threatened and warned, they prayed even bigger. Can you imagine that prayer that came out of their mouth in Acts 23 through verse 30? Again, they pray for boldness. They say, Lord, behold the threats of the enemies, but Lord, help that not distract us from our mission. Help that not deter us from our passion. Help spur us even more boldly and more passionately and more fervently towards your commission. Can you imagine those words coming out of our mouth after being beaten within an inch of our lives? I mean, I feel persecuted when the Krispy Kreme light shuts off when I pull into the parking lot. Right? I mean, I'm not picking on y'all, but when I pull in there and that light goes off, I feel like somebody has oppressed me, right? When I can't find a good parking spot, I feel like when my internet's not working at home, I feel like the enemy has surrounded my house and I have to do some exorcism, right? See, we feel persecuted when things are just not normal. These folks were beaten and were tortured and told to never mention Jesus again. And yet they come together and fall on their faces and they pray bigger than we could ever imagine. The prayer is bigger than the sum of their parts. They were all in. The remnant of by sight religion in them was cut off. They saw through the pain, through the suffering, through the traps, and they chose even still, we're going to walk by faith. They traded their dreams for dreams that God would give them as he promised in Joel chapter 2. They traded their plans for plans God had for them as he promised in Jeremiah 29, 11. They traded their wants and their desires for what God would put in their hearts as he promised in Psalms 30, 37 verse 4. They were willing to exchange their dreams and plans and desires for God's. They wanted whatever God had for them and more. I believe God has been speaking to his people in our generation about making this same great exchange. No matter what we give up, no matter what we lose, no matter what it costs us, are we really losing anything? Are we really falling behind? Are we really being emptied? But rather, we are gaining, we are winning, we are being filled. We rise up to a greater purpose. We make this great exchange without hesitation because we've received an invitation and we carry one to the world in our hearts. And come on, if we do say goodbye to anything and say yes to God, what are we losing? A life of sin? A life without eternity? A life of bondage to temporary things of this earth? To suggest that we're even making an exchange, it's almost humorous because we gain in every way. 
We lay our life down of anxiety and attachment and temporary pleasure for a life of peace and purpose, fulfillment and joy. So whatever it may cost us, we must not be fooled by that serpentine voice that whispers lies. We know better and we know we've been called to much better. So while the flesh does make it seem as if we can't afford or we aren't able to put things aside for Jesus and his call, we cry out to God, we call on his son, and we rely on his spirit to open up our eyes and our hearts to the path towards maximum living. Following Jesus has never taken away more than it's given. Anything I've ever given away, I've always been given back double or triple fold because God is able to make all grace abound toward us that we might have all sufficiency in all things at all times. And it's not always in the same substance. Sometimes what I give is replaced by something greater that I can't see or I can't touch, but I can sure feel it. It's of a substance that can't lose value. It can't be corrupted. Moths can't corrupt. Thieves can't steal. The economy can't take it away. God gives us a taste of heaven, and we know there's no turning back. That's what motivated the church after what they went through in Acts 4. Can you imagine Peter and John, their greatest assets, almost dead? You'd think they'd take cover. You'd think they'd say, hey, maybe we ought to be a little bit calm for a while. But no, they doubled down on boldness. And there's only one way to understand this. For them to really do this and be this bold, they must have really been eye to eye with the resurrected Jesus, right? There's no other way they go back to the mission field the next day after being beaten and taken, uh, told to never say the name of Jesus again. They must have really been given a spirit of resurrection. There must, they must have believed there was a greater mission. By the end of Acts 4, we see the church officially organized and galvanized. The early church was the most upstarts of upstarts. What they lacked materially, they made up for spiritually. Acts 4.32 says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. That's how unified they were. They didn't see individual right anymore. They saw us. That's pretty powerful. They were of one soul and one heart. They divested themselves of any and all selfishness and adopted a truly selfless model. Now what comes next is radical, and many try to spin this in ways that undermines their sacrifice and, and, and underscores the impact they were able to make. No, God didn't tell them to do this, and isn't necessarily advocating an economic or political platform, but Jesus had told them to do this very thing, and they were following the model Jesus gave them. It's true to the spirit of the church as it was meant to be and still should be. And I'm no politician, I'm just a pastor, and I'd say we'd do good to read and read and reread this passage and consider what it's asking us to do. This is the kind of church that gets things done for the kingdom of God. God's hand is on this kind of church. God's hand is on a church that takes its hands off the world. Not just when it comes to carnal sin, but when it comes to letting go of anything that rivals us, uh, rivals our faith in him. And this season has taught us we can get by without some things, hasn't it? But it's also taught us there's some things we can't get by without. We need each other, and we need Jesus. And isn't it true that sometimes our 21st century refined selves can lose sight of God amidst all the churchy things we've got? And over the past few months, we've had to say goodbye to some of those things for a little while. But guess what still remains? The family of God, not contained to brick or mortar, style or service length. We've adopted new methods. We've tried some things and kept other things, but we've been scrappy and versatile just like the early church was. But again, they were never lacking when it came to passion and vision. That's what bound them together. That's what united them. 
But consider verse 32 in a modern way. Think about this. Now, some of us, we think we can never do that. Others of us, we may see an opportunity to gain something from that kind of scenario. But listen, none of these with one heart and one soul were worried about losing or concerned about gaining. There was nobody there with a clenched fist or with a hand out. They were all hands up. A community that worshipped wasn't concerned with their own kingdoms, how much they had or how much they needed, how much better they had it than others, or how much worse they were compared to others. These people, they were determined to be a godly community, to be a godly church. And that's why God's power rested on them. Verse 33 says, Great power and great grace was upon them all. Consider the extremes of what they went to in verse 34. They sold what they had to commit to the kingdom of God. They divested themselves of the world and invested themselves in the kingdom. Can you imagine that? What if God is calling us to that same extreme today? Here we are outside. It's not the most comfortable of scenes. It reminds me of when the Jews were allowed to be back in the land after Persia had occupied it and Babylon had occupied it for years. In Ezra 10, there's a story about how the temple was rebuilt and they wanted to rededicate it. But there had been a lot of setbacks, a lot of, a lot of uh, corruption, a lot of sin. And Ezra comes into town as the priest and he is broken by the sinfulness of the people. So he fasts and he prays for days and nights. And then they come to the time where they can rededicate the temple, but it's the middle of December, it's cold, and it's monsoon season. And many say, hey, it's not the right time for that. It would be a little bit difficult. But the people come together and say, listen, do we want what God has for us or not? Are we set on heaven or are we set on earth? So for three days, they gather in the open square, trembling because of the wet monsoon, shaking even more in the presence of God. And within just a month, the scripture says a moral awakening swept over the land and revival, excessive and extravagant worship led to an amazing revival. They wanted God, they wanted all that he had, and they weren't going to let a little rain keep him from it. Here's the thing, with every new challenge, there's always some opposition for the church. This isn't political, this is about the enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness. The enemy is always going to find some way to make it difficult for God's people, but it's really a test to see how bad we want it. How much will we seek and find the Lord? A few years after that first revival, the nation once again came under hard times. They fell into oppression from their neighbors. The economy tanked. Political corruption locally overwhelmed the people. They were sold into slavery. It was all sorts of trouble. Nehemiah was removed from office. They lied about him. Ezra was removed from office. They lied about him. But over time, God put them back in place. And before they resettled and rebuilt and refinanced and refocused on the nation, they came together for 24 straight days. They assembled from 6 a.m. to noon. Can you imagine that? For 24 straight days, the last day of the feast, they listened to the word of God preached for six straight hours. And then they confessed their sins for six more hours. At the end of that, they wrote a covenant and they signed their names declaring their dependence on God, sealing it with an offering. How bad do you want it, church? How much you desire God's presence and God's power. It doesn't come through pomp and circumstance. It doesn't come through prosperity or comfort. It comes when we pour ourselves and put ourselves on our faces in front of God and say, God, take all away that you got to take away. Remove anything that's in the way. And oh, by the way, God, here's everything I've put in the way. 
Because we don't want to be full of the world so that we couldn't receive you. We want you and we want you alone. We want a greater faith and we want heaven's fire. We don't want stage fright. We want boldness to face whatever we must in this world for your honor and for your glory. So the world might see us and see through our flesh and feel your spirit. Do you want that, church? then we've got to do what the Acts 4 community did. Divest of this flesh. Invest in this spirit. Empty of this world's pleasures. Be filled with heaven's power. Turn from sin and turn towards our Savior. See, we read this in Acts 4 and we think, who could ever do this? I'll tell you who. Those who want the Lord more than anything and those who don't want anything to get in the way. I ask you again, how bad do you want it? How much do you want to draw near to him? Verse 34, 35, and 36 and 7 tells us of a group of people who wanted it so much they didn't let anything get in the way. You say, well, that's not necessary. It was for them. And I don't know what your heart is. I don't know your walk with Christ. But I know my own heart. And there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way. You can go read the next part. Acts 5 tells the story how they got arrested once again. The they didn't want to admit they loved this world more than they love. Or they tell the story of how there were some that didn't want to admit they loved the world more than they loved the Lord, and they held back on God. And those were taken out of this world within three hours of a Sunday service. And I don't say that to scare anybody, but the scriptures tell us to stir uh, to stir us up, to cause us to sit up a little bit straighter, to cause us to consider that we what we're on board for and how committed we are. The scripture says in verse 11 of chapter 5 that great fear swept over the whole community when these two decided they didn't want to be all in. Again, God isn't threatening. This is reality setting in. This world is fragile. This life is short. And only that which is done for Jesus and given to Jesus will last forever. Listen, if you're 8 or 88, you can put the Lord first today. You can choose to let nothing get in between you and Jesus. And if you sense anything, I mean anything, rising up between you and your faith, your commitment to him, to put him first and love like he loves, then you can lay it down. Maybe for just a little while, maybe forever, but no matter what, you will know that what matters most is your place in God's community, your place in God's kingdom. Later in Acts 5, the disciples are once again brought into custody. They never fought back, though, but they did stand up. See, the difference in fighting back and standing up is fighting back plays on the world's levels, but standing up plays on heaven's level. Standing up doesn't worry about payback. It focuses on getting back. They stood up, were arrested again. This time they were flogged for their faith, just like Jesus was with a Roman cat of nine tails. But Peter says, when they said, did we not tell you to never speak the name of Jesus again? Peter says, we must obey God rather than you. Now again, that doesn't speak to all circumstances, but it does speak for when we're called to be disobedient to God. There is pressure every day to be disobedient to God. Pressure around us and within us. Pressure that says Jesus isn't the most important person in our life. That says his calling isn't the most precious thing to us. This must refers to the divine necessity that God puts within us that overpowers our sinful tendencies that we're born with. There are a lot of we must in our sinful nature. We must do this and we must go there, but God is saying we must do something greater. He's calling us to a radical way of life that puts others above ourselves, puts kingdom over country, treasure in heaven over trinkets on earth, winning others to Jesus over winning in this life, worship over worry, giving over taking, love over hating, and Jesus over us.
So we're going to keep living sacrificial, we over me, us over I, countercultural way of life. We're going to keep loving and forgiving and serving and encouraging and impacting our world. And if we're going to do that, it may take some kingdoms of man being dismantled, but the kingdom of God will only be built up. And that's our goal after all. That's our destiny. We're going to close today with a song that help us, helps us look up, look up toward our destiny and leads us in worshiping our one and only king. I want to ask you, though, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want, how much do you want what God has for you? Read Acts 4 over and over again. Read Peter's words in Acts 5. What is God calling you today? Have you surrendered to him? Do you want him more than anything else? Do you want what he has for you more than anything else? May God make us a hands-up community that wants him and chases after him and doesn't let anything get in the way. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this word. Lord, it's challenging. God, I don't want to preach it sometimes. I read about people selling their homes and giving all their money away, and I think I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And that might be why I'll never have the great power and great grace on me that they had on them. So, Father, I'm open ears today. I'm open eyes to you today. I'm open hands to you today. I'm hands up to you today. And if anybody in this house wants to say with me, hey, our hands are up. We're not here with a hand out. We're not here with a clenched hand. Our hands are up. We're looking to heaven today. And we want more of Jesus than we've got. We want what he's got more than we want what we have. We want all of the fire and the faith and the power that heaven can give us. And if it means laying down everything that we've got, we're willing to do it. God, somebody today wants to fall on their knees where they're at and say, Father, my hands are up. My life is yours. Take whatever you got to take. Give what is better and unrivaled. Lord, as we look up to heaven today, as we sing about this song, sing this song that looks forward to eternity, somebody in this presence, in your presence today, wants to surrender to you and wants to say yes to you and say no to something that's in the way. Lord, a child can say that. No matter how old we may be, no matter what we've done, we all can raise our hands and say, Father, I want you more than anything else. I'll stand out in the heat. I'll stand out in the rain. I'll sell this. I'll lose that if it means gaining Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.